You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Romans chapter 15. Living to please others. We who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. We must not just please ourselves. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. For even Christ didn't live to please himself. As the scriptures say, the insults of those who insult you, O God, have fallen on me. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you, so that God will be given glory. Remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews, to show that God is true to the promises he made to their ancestors. He also came so that the Gentiles might give glory to God for his mercies to them. That is what the psalmist meant when he wrote, For this I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. And in another place it is written, Rejoice with his people, you Gentiles. And yet again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Praise him, all you people of the earth. And in another place, Isaiah said, The heir to David's throne will come, and he will rule over the Gentiles. They will place their hope on him. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, If I haven't met you before, my name is Jimmy. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my great pleasure and privilege often to open up God's word with you. And I feel like in Romans 15 this morning, we've got a bit of a feast to fill us with this morning, but I do have an important theological, philosophical question for you. So if you're the kind of person who takes notes, this is a question to write down. Are you ready for it? Are you a duck or are you a goose? Important theological question. Every single Monday from 9 in the morning till 5, I gather with my Leadership Academy interns, apprentices. There's four of them this year. Um, We gather together and we read God's Word together. We sing together. We challenge each other. And routinely about 3, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, they get this glazed look over their faces. And I haven't quite worked it out yet. Either they're so full of the knowledge of the glory of God that it's seeping out their eyes, or they're sick of me speaking and need a break. Um, So what we do when we see that look is that we go and feed the ducks. We get uh, whatever bread is available in the church. We go and we feed them. Um, And we do this about every two, three weeks, I think. But something that I've I've really picked up, um, something that you're not going to be able to discover through watching a David Attenborough special, uh, a duck would just about kill you and everyone you know in order to get a piece of bread. We'll head down to the pond, it'll be still, the ducks will be hanging out, they'll be cheeping, quacking at each other, they'll be uh, enjoying each other's company. You throw, you throw the bread in the water and it is like shark week. 
Right? They are drowning each other. They're biting each other. They're stealing the bread from each other. There is nothing that they won't do in order to get a piece of bread. But geese, on the other hand, geese are interesting creatures. We don't have heaps of them in Australia. There's some down at Phillip Island, some of the Northern Territories. But regardless, you would have seen geese fly, either in movies or a documentary, that classic V-shape. Geese are the ultimate team players. The reason why they fly in that shape is that by doing so, they actually can fly 70% further. It's more efficient for them to fly as a group scientists have told us. Now, um, if you've ever driven in a car with me, right, you'll know that, my, uh, that I'm very concerned about fuel efficiency. My petrol is always low, and I've always said that, well, if there's less petrol in there, the car weighs less, and so it's going to be more fuel efficient, right? Do you know what I would, I would do to get 70% more fuel efficient in my car? Right? Geese, geese are crazy. But not only that, they uh, rotate leadership in order to make sure that the goose at the front that does all the hard work doesn't get tired. They honk at each other in in order to encourage one another. And you might be at this point asking the question, well, why are you talking about ducks and geese? The reason is that I feel like too often in the church, we've acted, acted like ducks, only concerned about ourselves rather than the community around us. Too often we've individualized the gospel to the point where I just need to respond to the gospel myself, me and Jesus, and not think about the community around us. And so we end up with these weird and interesting things happen in Christian culture, where we leave churches not because of biblical disagreements, but because of our preferences, where we opt in and out of sanctifying means of grace because they don't suit our schedule. Right? where we sing songs louder or softer depending on how much we feel the tune. Right? Or our attendance at church is driven by whether something better comes up on a Sunday morning. Right? So often we're concerned with our own spirituality that we forget to think about the community. And Romans 15 often is a great corrective to us. Jesus has a better way. So I encourage you, friends, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to open up Romans 15. Father, I pray that this church this morning is unified by your Spirit. Let us lay down everything that gets in the way of our unity in you. Father, I pray that you soften our hearts and you guide our eyes towards you, that we get a filling of your glory, that we get to see you for all of your worth, and that guides us towards making all of life all about Jesus together, people helping us people. And everyone said in one big loud voice, amen. Next time I'm going to say one big soft voice, but we're getting better. Let's pick up Romans 15. We're actually going to start in the middle of what I think is the guiding verses for Romans 15, this section that we're at. So we're going to be picking it up at verses 5 and 6. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. May God, who gives endurance and encouragement, give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ had for us, so that 
with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says something incredibly interesting, that our praises towards God are fueled by and fanned by our unity as Christians. That if there is disunity in the church, it's going to affect our praise. That if there is unity in the church, it's going to affect our praise. How unified we are shapes how we worship God. And so if there is a selfish vein in the Christian faith, if there is a selfish vein in our Christian faith, then it must come to Romans 15 and die. Now, I'm going to say something that is so obvious that everyone will be like, oh, why are you saying it? But it's not. Christianity is not about us. Christianity is about God. The church is not about us. The church is about God. Right? The whole reason the church was created is so that God would create a people for himself. Not for us, for himself, so that we with one mind, one spirit, one voice might glorify God, the church, Christianity. It's not about us. And yet something pops up in Christian culture. You might have seen that quote by Gandhi when asked about his relationship with Christians or with Christianity. He said, well, to be honest with you, I like your Christ, but I don't really like your Christians. You might have heard that before. And it appeals to something that's true. Right? Christians can be mean and discouraging and difficult. But here's the truth. The church is Christ's bride. If you don't like Christ's people, then you don't like Christ. If you think that's harsh, then just read what the Apostle John says in 1 John 4.20. He says this, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Our love for each other shows that we love God or have been loved by God. If you don't like Christ's people, you don't like Christ. He saved you to make a people for himself. It's one of the reasons I love this quote by Don Carson from his book, Love in Hard Places. I suspect that one of the reasons why there are so many exhortations, that is encouragements, in the New Testament for Christians to love other Christians is because this is not an easy thing to do. And we all said, Amen. Ideally, however, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe Him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. The church is not a group of people with the same interest. It's a group of people with the same saviour. We are united in Him. And he goes on to say in verse 7, Accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted 
you in order to bring praise to God. The basis of our relationship with each other isn't our interest, it's not our education, it's not our jobs or our accents, it's Jesus. The basis of our relationship with each other is our relationship with Christ himself. If we have a relationship with Christ, we'll have a relationship with Christ's people. And you might be thinking, well, it's a difficult thing to do. Loving Christians is hard. That's okay. But if you're finding it difficult, the answer is to dwell on the grace that has saved you. If you're finding it difficult to accept other Christians, then dwell on the fact that Christ has accepted you and what it took him to do. And when he accepted you, he didn't wait until you niced yourself up and cleaned yourself off. He died for you whilst you were enemies, whilst you were sinners. He died for us in all of our theological and all of our educational shortcomings. He died for us in our stubbornness. He didn't wait until we cleaned ourselves up. And so how can we turn around to our brothers and sisters in all their shortcomings, in all their stubbornness, in all their sinfulness, and say, I won't love you, even though Christ loved me. No, the Christian community is one marked by loving difficult people because we have been loved by Christ when we were difficult in our sin. The Christian community is one marked by laying down our swords towards our former enemies because Christ laid down his life whilst we were his enemies. The Christian community is formed by Jesus. And the more we dwell on him, the easier we will find it to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you find it difficult to love a Christian or Christians in general, then dwell and meditate on Jesus and all that he has done in you, for you. And instead of seeing them, you'll start to see Christ in them. But the question might be, how do we grow? How do we grow this unity? How do we grow this sense of unity? Well, I think there are three things in Romans 15 that shape us, that help us grow in unity. And this is what they are. The church grows in unity when the strong serve the weak. And the church grows in unity when the Scriptures instruct us in encouragement and endurance. And the church grows in unity when the Spirit fills us with hope. Let's start that in verse 1, back to the beginning. Paul says this, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And it's important to note that Romans 15 is not a separate chapter. It's following on from Romans 14, what Jonah was sharing last week about strong Christians and weak Christians fighting over, disagreeing over food sacrificed to idols. Because there were some Christians who had come to the faith, who were believing in Jesus, and yet they'd lived their lives sacrificing these food to idols and saying, well, now that I've come to Christ, now I've come to Christ, I can't do that anymore. And Paul was on the other side saying, well, the idols that you sacrifice food to, they don't exist. They're, they're, they're just made up. They don't, they don't matter. You can eat whatever. God gave it to us. We should eat it. But then he says to them, 
But if it's a stumbling block for your weaker brother, then give it up. The strong should serve the weak. Now, we don't have food sacrificed to idols unless you've come from a Muslim background, but we do have plenty of things in which there are weaker and stronger brothers. One that comes to mind, Jono shared last week about alcohol, but for me it's been tattoos. Now, you might uh, be able to see that I've got um, a pretty big tattoo on my arm, and I'm happy to talk to you about that later, um, but for me and my family, it was a really interesting uh, disagreement. See, for me, there's no issue with Christians getting tattoos, but for my family, there was a huge one. And so I remember um, when I told my dad specifically about when I got my tattoo. Uh, Sarah and I were in Queensland. I thought the best thing for us to do would be to get as far away from my dad as possible before I told him the news. So we went to Queensland. And I, I told him, uh, I said, hey, Dad, love you. How are you going? All that kind of stuff. I was like, just wanted to let you know um, I, I got a tattoo. Hmm. Hmm. Well, James, um, I believe that, that God has given us these bodies, uh, that they're perfect, they don't need, but you know, if that's, that's your choice. So my, my dad had this huge hang-up about uh, marking bodies, and it mostly came from the context he grew up in, when, where people who had tattoos were usually drug addicts, they had, there was just a lot of stuff from his childhood. Now, I could go and argue with my dad about this and have you know, this routine argument, but instead... I think this is an issue of Christian liberty. Instead, when I go and have dinner with them, I just wear long sleeve shirts or jumpers. Right? My dad is convicted by this, even though I don't think it stands up in the Scriptures. But for him and his extended family, it's a huge thing. So rather than risk disunity, risk disagreement over something that doesn't really matter all that much, I serve him by covering up. But I think there's a deeper thing in here. There's a deeper principle than just the immediate context. I think in the church, the strong should always serve the weak. In the world, it's very different. In the world, the weak serve the the strong, right? The strong are the ones who have all the property, they have all the money, they have all the resources, and the weak serve them and make them richer. You might have been aware of a principle sociologically called the 80-20 rule. Right? And they discovered it in Italy where 80% of the land was owned by 20% of the people. Right? And so they discovered this rule that, that it basically stacks up most places. 80% of companies are owned by 20% of people. Even in Australia, I think, I think the actual statistics are, are going the other way now. It's more land owned by less people. Um, but the this, this sort of principle stands. In the world, the weak serve the strong. We work for them and earn their money. But in the, world, in, the, in the church, it's the other way around. In the church, the strong serve the weak. If you're a mature Christian, that is, you understand the gospel, you trust the gospel, you can apply the gospel to your situations, then your obligation is to serve those who are weaker than you. Weaker than that in your faith. That's not a derogatory comment. It just means you're starting out. That's okay. If you understand Jesus, if you can uphold the Scriptures and discern them, right, your job, your task is to serve those who can't do that yet. Our job as the strong is to serve those who are weak. And that's going to look like a whole bunch of different things. That's going to look like investing in relationships with those who are new in the faith. 
even when it's difficult. It's going to look like encouraging those people who are struggling when they feel like they have no hope. It's going to look like discipling and, being, and building up those who have not yet been built up. It's going to look like serving those who don't know what it is to serve. But I think often for a church like ours, it's going to look like the mature Christians laying down their preferences and not their convictions. See, in lots of churches that I've grown up in, the preferences of the mature members were a greater guide for the church than biblical convictions were. And you can see this all over from what we wear to how we speak to a whole bunch of different stuff. And if you've been a part of churches, you will have preferences for how you'd like things to run. You'll have preferences over how long or short a sermon should be. You'll have preferences for how um, a pastor should lead. You'll have preferences for how small groups should run, whether we should have small groups. You'll have preferences for what should be in the services? What kind of worship music we have? Should we have organs? Should everything be Hillsong 2018? Should everything be Hillsong 1990s? Right? You'll, have, you'll have preferences. And yet Paul is saying, if you're strong in Christ, serve the weak. There are things that we will need to go to war over. If someone came and preached from the Book of Mormon, you best believe that there'd be a huge disagreement over it. They would be removed from the stage. But there are churches in which you can only wear suits. In a church like ours, maybe it's you can only wear skinny jeans. Right? But it doesn't mean anything. They're not biblical convictions. Right? In 20 years, John and I will probably be wearing skinny jeans and someone will be wearing balloon pants. It won't matter. Maybe I should invest in balloon pants. Right? Organ music versus hills. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Our preferences don't matter if we're mature Christians. Lay them down. An example of this is the Bibles that we use every week. You might notice that we have NIV Bibles, but actually for Jono and myself, the Bibles we use in our personal study are ESVs, English Standard Versions. And the reason we do that is we think that's a superior translation, but we also know that the ESV is much harder to read. It's a bit wooden, it's a bit hard to read, it's a bit hard to grasp. And for a number of people here who are either new in the faith or have English as their second language, NIV is just an easier read. And we'd rather people read the Word than be confused over it. And so we lay down our preference of the ESV, which is what we started with, and we read the NIV to the glory of God because we want to be able to worship God in one spirit, one mind. Another one is singing. Now, you, uh, you might notice that no one sit ne sits near me anymore at the front. Maybe that's because I'm at the front, but maybe it's also because I sing really loudly and I don't sing very beautifully. So I've come to grips with that. I once asked Sarah, um, yeah, babe, do you think I'll ever be good at singing? And she turned to me and said, I think God has given you other gifts. <laughs> you know, it's a, a godly, honest wife is a blessing. That's okay. And I, I didn't always sing loudly. Because right? I was very self-conscious about my, my voice. But I've grown to realize that over time as a Christian, that singing to each other is actually a means of encouraging each other. I remember last year, about two weeks after Sarah was diagnosed with cancer and she was in the hospital, I came to church and I felt like the weakest person here. I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to worship God. I didn't want to sit under the scriptures. I just didn't want to be here. And that's a weird place as a pastor, but it happens. And let me tell you, the single most... I don't know, encouraging things that God did in that, that meeting was that I sat down 
and I didn't want to sing, and God's people just sang so loudly, and it felt like it was directed all towards me. And in that moment, I was encouraged, I was uplifted, and I knew who God was. People's voices encouraged me. The strong, those who are full of Christ, full of the Spirit, who are feeling strong in the faith, sang loudly and ministered to me, who was feeling weak in the faith, who was feeling distant from God, who was feeling disconnected from the church. And I was strengthened and encouraged. And we were unified. And Paul ramps up the stakes. He says this in verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Interesting thing. In 15 chapters of the most theologically dense book, this is the first time that Paul uses Christ as an example. In the last 14 chapters, he's uh, explained and expounded what Christ has done and what implication that has for us, but he hasn't yet said, be like Jesus. And in 15, he says, be like Jesus. If we want to have this mission of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus, then we need to be like Jesus. And one of the things that Jesus does is lay down his preferences. One of the things that popped out of me is the conversation that Jesus has with God in the Garden of Gethsemane. This famous passage in the, the book of Luke, it's in other Gospels as well. It says this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. If we want to be a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus, then we need to be a community of people who say, not my will but your will be done, Lord. Because there are plenty of preferences here that you might have. Right? You... I'm just assuming that almost no one here grew up in an Anglican church, right? We have Pentecostals, Presbyterians, Baptists, Catholics, atheists, agnostics. Everyone has come from all kinds of different backgrounds. I can guarantee you there are things we do that you find strange and weird, from the greeting of the peace to the things we say, like the, the collect, right? Preferences. Preferences. And yet the thing we need to be saying is, not my will, Lord, yours be done. If this is leading people, guiding people towards treasuring Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. Verse 4. The second thing that encourages us towards unity is the Scriptures. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement that they provide, we might yet have hope. If we want to be united, we must be united by something. And we all instantly say, God, but where do we learn about God? If we want to worship God in one spirit, one mind, one voice, then we need to know who the God we worship is. And if we want to know who the God we worship is, then we need to know God's words better than we know our own words. And if we want to know God's words, we need to be in the Scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament, but I think we could just open this up to the whole Testament. If we want to know who God is, be in the Scriptures. We're not just a group of people who are gathered together to worship this distant, foreign, abstract principle of God, a divine spark. We're here to worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon and Peter and Paul and John right through to the present day. We have a God who has acted in history and if we want to worship Him and be encouraged by Him and have endurance from Him, then we need to know who He is and we know who He is in the Scriptures. So as we gather together, as we accept each other, we are guided by the Scriptures. Another thing that 
Scripture does is it clarifies our mission. Now, when we come to church, there's lots of different missions and lots of th- different reasons we come here. Whether it's I'm feeling discouraged, whether it's feeling, um, I don't even know, sense of community. But um, one of the things I researched when um, I was doing this talk is what a church is split over. And it is incredible. The just, I can't think of a word that I can say here. Churches have split over someone hiding the vacuum cleaner. Churches have split over, um, what do you say in the Lord's Prayer? Do you say, forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our debts? There were two churches who tried to come together. They couldn't because they couldn't disagree over this. And one newspaper said one church went back to its trespasses and the other went back to its debts. It was a funny way of making sense of something that's just so silly. Doesn't, that doesn't matter. right? What does it matter where the vacuum cleaner is? Just make sure it gets done. We have a mission to make all of life about Jesus, to glorify the Father, to worship Him, one spirit, one mind, one voice. We have a mission to baptize the nations, instructing them of everything that Jesus has taught. That's the mission. That's the goal. All these lesser things don't matter. Who cares where the vacuum cleaner is? You look at sports teams. Sports teams don't gather around the bushfire singing Kumbaya together to try and grow their unity. They have a mission together to win the premiership, to win the flag, to win the whatever it is, to win the league, right? And that's what they're working towards. And so they just smooth over all these instances of things that would get in the way of fights, all that kind of stuff, because they need to get the mission done. And the Christian church has such a greater mission than winning a premiership. Let me tell you, Richmond won the flag last year. Church on Sunday was better, right? Because premierships are great, but Jesus is better. And so if our mission is making much of Jesus, then we need to be unified and just forget all the dumb stuff that divides us. Verse 8. Skip a couple because we started in verse 5. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you amongst the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. And again it says, Rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord all you Gentiles. Let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, in him who the Gentiles will have hope. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You might be sitting here today thinking, this is great. I want to be unified. I want to feel community. I want to be connected. I want to be engaged. Where do I get the power to do this? Because Sometimes I feel like I don't want those things. Where do I get the one to? Where does God change me and challenge me and convict me towards this? Well, there's two things that we need to pick up from this. One, super important what Jesus says in the beginning. I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Let's get this again. Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth 
so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God. Christ has become a servant to unify two groups that were not unified, that are not unified based on education, are not unified based on politics, are not uh, unified based on uh, their nationalities or even their religions. He's made them one in Jesus. Christ became a servant so that we might be unified. Unity isn't something that we create. It's something that we recognize. From the moment my brother was born, he was my brother. There's nothing that I could do to make him less my brother or more my brother. He just is my brother. I could not recognize him, right? but it doesn't change the fact that he is a biological uh, I was going to say descendant. That's not right. He is a biological relation to me, right? He is the maximum my brother he could ever be, and so it is in the church. Every single one of us has been brought in by Christ, is now brothers and sisters in Jesus, adopted by the Father, right? We're part of the kingdom of light. We've been transferred from death to life together. There is a unity that is already here. We don't create unity. We recognize something that Jesus has already done. Jesus has unified us. We have a deeper unity than anyone else. It is deeper than family. It is deeper than sports. It is deeper than politics. It is deeper than interests. What has unified us in Christ is powerful. And our task is not just to create it, it's to recognize it and then live out of it. Now, my brother is the maximum my brother he will ever be. But I guarantee there's a huge difference of the way I treat him if I recognize him as my brother than if I don't. And so if we look around and view each other as this kind of disconnected gaggle of strangers, that's going to impact the way we treat each other. But if we look around and say, this is the army of Christ, the people God has made for himself, brothers and sisters in arms who have been made clean and pure by the resurrection of Jesus, that is going to change the way that we treat each other. That's going to change the way that we live with each other. There's a unity here that is so powerful. Let us not create it, but recognize it. Jesus has already done it. The second thing, if you're, and I get it, Christians have been historically mean and hard and um, there's lots of other words that we could use. There's a reason why that Gandhi quote uh, keeps popping around. Like, I like your Christ and not your Christians. And I, I can't even begin to imagine some of the things that you've gone through in the church, some of the hurts that you've walked through, some of the relational bra- breakdowns that you've encountered. And so if you're sitting here and going, I don't know how to do this. I get Christ has made us unified. That's great. Where do I, what, what next? I want you to dwell on verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are feeling like you can't do this, be reminded that God actually gives you his spirit so that you can do it. Two things that are incredibly important. Right? Verse 5 and verse 13 say the same thing. I've got a little slide here. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had. And verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Spirit. Well, who is the one who gives us endurance and encouragement? It's God. And who is it that gives us the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had? It's God. And who is it that fills us with joy and peace as we trust in Him? It's God. And who gives us the Holy Spirit? It's God. And so if you're sitting here 
struggling, tired of working and being disunified and disconnected, pray to God and cry out to him, give me all of these things that you say you'll give me. Give me hope and joy and peace. Give me endurance and encouragement so that I might have the same mind. Give me the same mind. I want to see my brothers and sisters in Christ as you see them. This isn't something we accomplish on our own. It's something done by God, through God, for God. And this is something that is vital. If we desire at all, honestly, to be a church, right? people helping people make all of life all about Jesus, then one of the things that will kill us is disunity. And I get it, right? Anglican church, most of us didn't grow up in the Anglican church. We've got a whole bunch of theological flavors and stews. It's like this weird kind of spiritual soup sometimes at church. But we are made one in Jesus, and we must recognize that. And it's not just us, it's also the church down the road. It's also Enjoy Church. It's also the Presbyterian Church. It's also the Baptist Church. It's everyone at all times who worships God and glorifies Him. Right? And why? So that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal. So friends, let me pray for us that we would have this mindset, that we would have our praise and worship of God fueled and fanned by our unity in Christ. So if you want to bow your heads, let me pray. Father, this is not something that we can accomplish in our own. It seems like the last 500 years have been filled with disunity and distrust and disconnection, but I pray that we would see and recognize that in Christ you have unified us in a bond that cannot be broken. We belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We belong to a family that cannot be disconnected. Because our unity isn't based in our fellowship with each other, it's based in our fellowship with you. I pray that you would change our minds and our hearts towards our brothers and sisters. That as there are those who are difficult to love, that we would dwell on how Christ has loved us. And I pray that the Spirit of God would fill us with hope that you yourself would give us the gift of encouragement and endurance, that you would give us the same mind that Jesus has towards us, that you would give us all these things so that we might worship you in one spirit, one mind, one voice. So we pray these prayers not as individual, isolated people, but as the gathered people of God, the church. We pray this in one voice. Amen.